Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're continuing our series through 1 John. We began last Sunday. I'm going to read now verses, chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. But just I would note that um, the verses in chapter 2, we're going to come back to them uh, next Sunday. We'll include them in the reading, and the sermon will take us right up to that point. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. <clears throat> Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you. You are light. You've given us light. We praise you that you have not left us groping in the darkness, in ignorance and blindness and superstition, but have made yourself known to us, and not only in nature, but especially in your word, the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make us wise unto salvation and to equip us thoroughly for every good work to your glory. And we pray that your spirit would make your word an effectual means of grace, in our lives, we ask that you'd enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that the scriptures would, that this text in particular would um, encourage us, comfort us, challenge us, and reassure us as we seek to live in the light and walk in the obedience of faith. And bless us to this end, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Well, you know those lists that begin, you know, you know you're a blank if blank. So, for example, you know you're a redneck if you own a home that is mobile and five cars that aren't. Or you know you're a Floridian if you know that anything under category three isn't worth waking up for. Or you know you're Floridian if anything under 70 degrees is chilly. Or here's one for you mothers. You know you're a mom if instead of running away from projectile vomit, you run towards it. And we come across all kinds of lists like this, especially you know, on the internet. It's filled with them. And we hear them quite often. Sometimes, you know, you, you, you see yourself in them. You might say, yes, I'm definitely a mom. I run towards projectile vomit. Other times they confirm 
You know, you don't see yourself in them and they confirm what you know you're not. Like, I'm a dad. I don't run towards projectile vomit. <laughs> All this to say, I got our text this morning and really, I, I would suggest all of this epistle we're studying, um, functions in a very similar way as that. Uh, here, the Apostle John has merged two short lists in this passage, and the, the, um, that list will grow as we go deeper and deeper into this book of the Bible. Um, but here, one list, you could say, begins, you know you're a, a counterfeit Christian if... And the other begins, you know you're a real Christian, if. And you just note that word, if, occurring over and over in our text, right? Uh, six times, if I counted correctly. And so, from the outset, just to state it simply, before we unpack it, uh, John is essentially saying, you know you're a counterfeit Christian, if, one, you're walking in darkness, despite your vocal claim to have fellowship with God, and two, you deny that you're a sinner. You know, refusing to acknowledge your need of forgiveness and, and cleansing. But he also gives us another list to think through. He says, you know you are a real Christian if, one, you are walking in the light. You know, uh, in other words, consistent with your claim to have fellowship with God. And secondly, if you confess your sins. Trusting in Christ alone for forgiveness and cleansing. So we want to take a closer look at this um, in our brief time this morning. And I'll just begin by reminding you of something that uh, I said last Sunday as we began our study, uh, namely that, that John's, uh, the Apostle's overarching purpose in this particular epistle is to, to reassure believers that they do indeed have eternal life, that they are indeed real Christians. And so he says at the end of the epistle, uh, Chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. I write these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. The, uh, the life, the essence of which we, we learned last Sunday is fellowship with God, the Father, the Son, as he, as, as he says there. And so the Apostle's purpose throughout this epistle is pastoral, and the theme is really assurance. He writes to a group of Christians who are confused and who are uncertain in, in the wake of a recent church split. Um, or, you know, something like that has clearly happened. And uh, there are, uh, we're not given all the details, but it's very clear reading the, the, uh, the epistle that there, there, there are people on both sides who, of this split that took place. People on both sides claim to be real Christians. But their beliefs regarding Jesus and so forth, and their lifestyle are radically different. And they can't both be right. One side has to be wrong in claiming to have eternal life and truth. One side, therefore, must have false assurance of eternal life and fellowship with God. So the question, how do you tell the difference between somebody who claims to be a Christian but isn't? I know we can't read hearts and everything, and that's not even John's point, but how do you, how do you tell the difference between somebody who claims that but isn't and somebody who claims to be a Christian and, and is? So what are the hallmarks of reality, the, 
the signs of authenticity? What are the observable outward evidences of grace in a person's heart? And what I'm saying is that John writes this letter to, on the one hand, expose and undermine the false assurance of the counterfeit Christians, those who have left, those who belong to this new sort of heretical sect uh, in, in, that, in the particular context, and on the other hand, to establish and indeed buttress the right assurance of real Christians, those who remain uh, in the apostles' teaching as part of the, the other group. <laughs> And it's to this end that he states clear criteria for assessing whether someone's Christian faith is genuine, aiming to reassure real Christians that they are indeed on the right track, in right standing with God, numbered among his children, and heirs of eternal life. Just recalling very briefly last Sunday, looking at verses, those opening verses of this letter, John's basically saying there, like put it as succinctly as possible, <laughs> that you know you are a real Christian if you believe, first, that Jesus is the Son of God incarnate, the enfleshed word, the logos, the embodiment of eternal life. And those who embrace this fact, then, as, as proclaimed by the apostles, indeed have fellowship with God, God the Father, God the Son. And those who deny it don't. And I think John's point, you know, there in those first four verses is the foundation for what follows here in our passage this morning as John proceeds. That is to say, the fact of the incarnation of the Son of God is the foundation for his work on the cross. And all that John says here about the centrality of the cross work of Christ. John is teaching us then that the firm foundation of the believer's abiding assurance is the person and work of Christ, the crucified God-man. And John's telling us this up front, from the start, because this is where, where every Christian must begin in our own quest for assurance. Because we are sinners and God is light, we must always begin there with the gospel, with Christ. The way... And the way to have fellowship with a God who is light is not to deny the fact or effects of sin. No, but as we'll see, to confess our sins and place our faith in God's perfect provision for our pardon and purification. So that's bringing us now to just working through the verses. As we look more closely at them, notice how it starts, how John's, John's contrast between uh, real and counterfeit Christians is set within the broader framework of the contrast between light and darkness. His first major point is the theological concerning the nature of God. Verse 5, this is a message we've heard from him, from Jesus, and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. I'm sure you're well aware, light uh, represents what is good, what is pure, what is holy. And John 
clearly wants to drive home the point, the truth, that God is perfectly pure, absolutely holy, morally good. He's so completely uh, pure and unadulterated light that in him there is no darkness at all. And you know, darkness, that of course represents the opposite. What is, it represents what is sinful and what is evil and what is corrupt. Uh, it, uh, it represents, you know, all that contradicts God. Actually, the Greek here could be translated as um, God is light and darkness in him. No, not any at all. <laughs> it's like it's emphatic. Like, there's absolutely no defect or imperfection in God. No dark corners, no shadows, no moral inconsistencies, no error or falsehood or corruption. He, it rather, is all the beauty and purity and perfection. I wish I had better words. <laughs> He's all that can be represented to us by pure, unadulterated light. So you have light, darkness, light and darkness, these are diametrically opposed and mutually exclusive, aren't they? It's, and it is elementary, it's axiomatic. That, as like Paul says in, in the text I read uh, earlier from 2 Corinthians, what, it's an obvious axiomatic thing, what fellowship has light with darkness? There's no union between them. When light shines, darkness vanishes. They cannot... They coexist side by side. God and sin are utterly incompatible, antithetical. And so with that, we're now in a position to see the personal implications of claiming to be in a relationship with such a God as this, as he is. See, if you're going to have fellowship or communion with that kind of God, it's going to mean a dramatic change from a life of sin and darkness. You cannot live a life bent towards sin and away from God. And fellowship with a God who is most pure and perfectly holy. To claim to have fellowship with a God who is light. And to live in contradiction of that light. That is, to remain in darkness reveals an utterly intolerable inconsistency, incongruity, in a word, a hypocrisy, the depth of delusion. And don't take just my word for it. This is what John's driving at in verse 6. He continues, if we say we have fellowship with him, that's our verbal claim, while we walk in darkness, or live in darkness, we lie. Do not practice the truth. In other words, back to sort of the, the, the meme thing. Right? Like, you know you're a counterfeit Christian if you walk in darkness. Now, John doesn't spell out what walking in darkness fully entails, but clearly it means something like you're living in a way that's totally antithetical to God. The one in whom there's no darkness at all. It means living outside the revelation of God's character and will in Scripture. It, it, it means living in defiance of God's commandments to love him and neighbor. 
It means to pursue a pattern of life apart from God, a life bent towards sin and self, a life that does not manifest a concern for purity and holiness. In short, a life that does not match but contradicts one's vocal claim to have fellowship with a God who is light. And such a life betrays a lack of God's work of grace in the heart. It's just like what James says in his epistle. He says, if we say we have faith, we claim that, and yet have no works, then our faith is dead. In other words, it's not true faith. Not true saving faith. And John's saying essentially the same thing here. Anyone who claims to be in touch with God while walking in darkness is clearly a liar. And is clearly not putting the truth into practice. And this is a vitally important issue, not simply for John's original audience in their context, but also vitally important, I think, for every Christian always, including us. Because it's never not been the case that it, it, you know, it's easy to make a, a, a profession of faith, even to be baptized you know, with water and to become a communicant member of the visible church, and yet to live a life that fundamentally contradicts that claim. And so the point now is John's driving home this point that, and reminding us that a profession of faith in Christ absolutely requires a life that, that matches it, that aligns with it. The proof of claims to be orthodox in our beliefs and to truly know God is a holy life, a life of godliness, and for that there can be no substitute. A person who persists in darkness cannot be in fellowship with a God who is light. The two states are mutually exclusive. And therefore John says in verse 7, as he continues to unfold uh, his, his argument. Verse 7, he says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. He said, this is the first point on John's other list that I mentioned in my introduction. He's saying, you know you are a real Christian if you walk in the light. In contrast to the counterfeit Christian who claims fellowship with God but walks in darkness, the real Christian claims fellowship with God and walks in the light. And that means we live continually and consistently in the light of God's presence, living each day with God who is light in the radiance of his light so that we reflect God's light, you know, his virtues and glory, his image. It means a life bent in a Godward direction, a life spent in pursuit of purity and holiness, a life of loving obedience to God's commandments, a life shaped by who he is and the word he has spoken. In short, it means a life that matches our claim and aligns with our claim to have communion with the God who is light. A God in whom there is absolutely no darkness. See, that kind of life does display God's work of grace in a heart. 
That kind of life does demonstrate the, genuous, the genuineness of our Christian faith. It shows that we truly know God. Only when we are living in the light can we have fellowship with God. Indeed, a fellowship, as John reminds us in this text, a fellowship that is embodied as fellowship with one another, others with us, and we with them, and both with God as the true in the fellowship of the true church. Further, if we live in light, in the light, and have fellowship with God and with one another, we realize that we have been cleansed from sin. John says, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What a glor glorious, reassuring words aren't they? The sin-bearing sacrifice of God's Son not only affects our forgiveness, you know, canceling our debts, but washes away the stain of our sins. And so walking in the light, this is reminding us too that walking in the light does not mean that we no longer need continually, continual daily cleansing from sin. To the contrary, the normal, ordinary Christian life involves continual cleansing from sin, not sinlessness. And as God continues to do that through the blood of Christ, we're manifesting that we are in fellowship with God. A real Christian knows the continual cleansing we all need in the Christian life because each of us knows we walk in darkness to some extent. We commit sins and are so far from perfect and stumble in so many ways. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. <clears throat> we're going to take verses 8 and 9 together uh, just to save some time the question is what is another sign of a counterfeit Christian well verse 8 says if we say that we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us and then verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, we make God a liar, and his word is not in us. In other words, you know you're a counterfeit Christian if you deny that you're a sinner. Because to do that, you know, to claim to be sinless, to deny you're a sinner, demonstrates that you are walking in darkness. Again, what? Fellowship has light with darkness. Walking with God in the light means our lives are continually being searched by his truth so that we begin to realize how many marks of sin we have within us. As we walk in the light, we become more conscious of our guilt, not less. Our consciences are being sensitized by the Spirit through God's Word. As David Jackman put it, quote, one of God's projects in the life of every growing Christian is to peel back more and more layers of our hidden depravity and sinfulness as we can bear it so that we start to see ourselves as we really are in God's sight, end quote. So this is all part of living in the light of God's presence, of having a credible 
Christian profession of having the truth in us and doing the truth. Testing a person's Christian profession is really as simple as asking whether he agrees with what God says about him in his, in his word, particularly, particularly in relation to sin. And to deny sin is to plunge into the darkest depths because such denial is itself an act of darkness. And yet it happens all the time, really, in our culture, obviously, painfully so, and, and not, you know, it, it, it can infect the church too. You know, it happens, for example, when, um, when, like, you know, we did just deny we are sinners by nature and by practice, thinking, you know, man is essentially good and innocent. It happens when we no longer, another, it would be, that when we no longer call sin, sin. You know, when adultery becomes having an affair or fornication is free love or homosexuality is an alternative lifestyle and theft is hoping, is, or is helping myself to the perks. Selfishness is standing up for my rights and on and on. It happens as well when we deny the, the fact or guilt of sin by seeking to interpret it solely in terms of physiological or psychological or social causes. It even happens when the Bible's misinterpreted or twisted to teach the doctrine of Pelagianism or Christian perfectionism. In short, it happens whenever we deny that there is an absolute moral standard and whenever we fail to see any fault in ourselves or feel any personal need of forgiveness. In effect, we're saying, we have no sin. We have not sinned. But this denial of sin is itself sin. And sin can't be dealt with by denial. To deal with it by denial is to deceive oneself. It is delusional. We believe a lie of our own making. And what's more, if we deny we have sinned, we are actually calling God a liar. And that's meant to shock us, or ought to. We deny his word. And all that it reveals to us in terms of our relation to sin. We say his revelation is not true. We embrace the darkness. If we've never seen ourselves as a guilty sinner before a holy God, and desperately in need of his forgiveness, then we, we, we cannot be a real Christian. There can be no fellowship with the God who is light. That's because if, if, we, if we say that, if, if we say, oh, I'm, really, I'm, I'm not really a sinner. I have no sin. I don't sin. I'm fine on my own. Doing fine. What we're really saying is I don't accept God's diagnosis of my need. I don't need a Savior. I don't need his death on a cross. So you see the problem. Claiming to be sinless treats the cross with contempt and Christ's sufferings as worthless. It makes the cross of no account. It renders his sacrifice meaningless. Unnecessary. Well, what does the real Christian do? 
according to John here, uh, what, or how is the Christian to think about sin? If we're not to deny it, surely we better not do that. So I'd make you a liar and calling God a liar. But if we're not to deny it, how are we to think about it? How are we to think about one's sinful nature and sinful practices? Well, that's the answer comes in verse 9. John continues. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, beloved, here is the proper Christian response to, to sin, stated plainly. Right? The alternative to denying our sin is simply to confess it. To confess it. Denying sin is inconsistent with walking in the light, which entails recognition of sin and a willingness to confess it. The answer to denial is confession. We openly and honestly face sin. Own up to it without hiding it, with you know, fig leaves, without finding excuses for it. We confront the sins we've committed without defending or justifying ourselves. Because confession recognizes that a particular action or course of behavior is morally wrong. And goes on to admit that we are personally guilty of that wrong. And you see, that is, that is doing the truth, to use John's phrase. It demonstrates a positive response to God's light. We see ourselves in the light of the living God and his holy law. We stop comparing ourselves with others. We stop commending ourselves. We stop exonerating ourselves or shifting blame to others. Instead, we agree with God. It's essentially what this word confession means. Confess. We agree with God that we have sinned against him and deserve to be punished. We say amen to God's guilty verdict on our lives. We see the seriousness and the heinousness of sin. We agree with God that, that, that sin will damn us to everlasting hell unless he forgives and cleanses us. St. Augustine observed that our confession of sin is a sign that truth, which is itself light, has already begun to illuminate our sin-darkened lives. Refusing to admit sin is self-deception, abiding in darkness. To walk in the light, that means we become increasingly conscious of, of sin, the sin that would hinder our fellowship with God and each other. And as that sin is revealed and are exposed, not to run away into the darkness or pretend it doesn't exist or, or that it isn't really that serious after all, rather we, we bring it by faith to the God whose son gave his life, bled and died, that all our sins might be forgiven. And this forgiveness, so this forgiveness is not on the grounds of, of our, the intensity of our repentance or, you know, um, how many tears you shed in, in lamentation over them, but on the grounds, rather, of what God has done for us on the cross. We're to look to the cross and rejoice in the knowledge that God, our God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I and mean, not only is God faithful to do that, 
course he's faithful, upholding his covenant and extending his mercy always immutably, but he is also just to do so. He's just in doing so. And how's that? How can a faithful God justly forgive sin? Should he not condemn and punish sin to the utmost? Yes. The answer is yes. And the good news is that he has done this in his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, the righteous. God will by no means clear the guilty, but beloved, in Jesus Christ, God has executed his just judgment on our sin. The forgiveness of our sins is a matter of justice to God. Faithfulness too, of course, but justice. Not that you receive his justice for your sins, if you're a Christian, but Christ has received God's justice for your sins. And therefore, amazingly, God says, when we come to him and we, and we confess our sins, he in essence says, I would be unjust if I didn't forgive your sins. I will not and cannot refuse. It is a matter of faithfulness and justice on my part. And that's, that's something to celebrate. That the God who is light, the infinitely holy, pure and just and righteous God who hates sin, will not tolerate wickedness, by no means clears the guilty, is at his most just when he pardons the sins of those who confess them and close with Christ. The justice of God requires him to be propitious to us because the penalty has already been paid in full. In his death, Jesus Christ met the demands of justice and satisfied them for us so that the way is paved for God to freely forgive us and still not compromise his unyielding standards of justice. Another way is to say, if God has forgiven our sins through visiting the penalty of those sins on his only begotten son and our savior, it would be wrong for him to revisit the penalty of our sins upon us. It would be unjust of him to demand a second payment. Because in Christ, the work's finished, accomplished once for all, and his blood goes on cleansing us from all sin, from all unrighteousness. And so this is the message. John is saying that the real Christian realistically looks at sin in his own life, takes it seriously, and deals with it by thankfully appropriating God's only provision for pardon and cleansing. And therefore, in contrast to denying the fact or effects of sin, which is darkness, John says, no, we confess our sins. We confess our sinfulness. And we lay it before the throne of grace, realizing that God has dealt with it faithfully and justly in Jesus Christ, and that no sin can stand before the effectiveness of his blood. This, 
my friends, is the firm foundation of assurance. A solid and unshakable ground of full and abiding certainty. It is written so that you who believe in the Son may know that you have eternal life, life in fellowship with the living God. God is light. By this we know we have fellowship with him if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, with the blood of his Son cleansing us from all sin. A just and faithful God has made perfect provision for us and for our salvation in his presence even now, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He, and he alone, is a propitiation for our sins. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And therefore, in fellowship with one another, let us join our hearts and voices together in singing these great words of our next hymn. Arise, my soul, arise, shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands, before the throne my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of Scripture, for its message to us, which rings forth from this pulpit and resonates in our hearts. Thank you for reminding us uh, that you are light. There's no darkness in you. To have fellowship you entails walking in the light and being cleansed from all of our sins. And Lord, we pray that we would go forth in the sure and certain knowledge of this precious good news. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to think biblically about sin and grace and about the gospel and about salvation and to confess our sin and to rest in your covering, experience your cleansing, and to go on living in the light, practicing the truth and walking in your ways. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.